Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I welcome back Bridget Thompson and we talk about trusting yourself with money. You have to kind of go through all of that to come back to the place where you can then acknowledge once again that money is just a tool. But if you have, you know, $30 in the bank and you can't pay your mortgage, you don't want to hear that. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to write about how to start where you are. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I'm your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now. Hey, my friends. 
If you haven't heard my previous episode with Bridget, I strongly recommend you stop this episode and you scroll back and you find episode 67 is titled Making Room Inside of the Body to Heal Trauma. And it's a really incredible conversation with Bridget that um, puts somatic work into a different context that I really love or with a different language. So during that interview, I find out that she has this book called Trust Yourself with Money. And I was so excited to speak with her about this because one major piece of trauma healing with, with many of us involves money. It involves our current financial situations. It involves our parents' value and relationship to money. It involves poverty trauma. Um, it also involves people who have a lot of money, millions and billions of dollars even, how that sometimes is a result of a major trauma response, a flight response by overworking and overdoing, an anxiety of not having enough, and even like a hoarding tendency with money because there's such a fear of losing something. So the work of somatics and trauma and inner relationship healing is very, very connected to our relationships with money. And so in this episode, Bridget and I talk about some of those relationships from personal experiences, as well as experiences from her book. And anyone who's interested in doing work with her or reading her book and getting on her wait list, uh, rather her, her um, newsletter, her mailing list for some upcoming um, workbooks she's putting out, you can go to trustyourselfwithmoney.com. So without further ado, let's have a listen to the episode. And I'd like to welcome back to the podcast, Bridget Thompson. Welcome back, my friend. Well, thanks for having me, Luis. I, I love having you. And I've gotten so many incredible um, letters, comments, emails about the, the capacity episode you know, because the way you spoke about capacity was so different and so complementary to how I speak about it. And it was really helped a lot of people. So thank you for that. Wow. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. So you're, you're a bit of a, a celebrity on this podcast. And so <laughs> <laughs> you're happy to welcome back the celebrity guest to talk about your book. And I'm, I want to talk about just like, there's so much I want to talk about, but I want to start with you just telling us about the book and about your experiences that led up to the book. Let's start there. I know it's wow. a lot, so you start wherever you want to. It is a lot. And, you know, the more I think about how I talk about this experience and share my story, the more I realize how much making a narrative is like sculpting. You have to leave things out. You have to shave things off. Otherwise, it's, it's never going to be finished. You can never communicate it. There's so many twists in the road, you know, that led to that experience that I share in the book. And the funny thing is, while I was writing the book, of course, the journey continued. And so where do you begin and where do you end? But yeah. I think, um, you know, I've been thinking about how I want to have this conversation with you. And the reason I'm so excited is that I get to blend the somatic work that I've been doing and thinking about with this topic that I've been living with and working with for so many years. And um, so I think what I would say is the book really reflects a kind of 
intuitively somatic understanding of what I was going through. I just didn't know that I could call it that or that it would be helpful to look at it through that lens. But a lot of the language I use to describe my feeling of being in debt, my feeling of not knowing what to do, what not knowing what kinds of decisions to make, not knowing how to prioritize, not knowing how to kind of dig myself out of a hole financially. Those were all happening in the body for me, all of those experiences. So I start off by just talking about the moment I was writing in, which was the top of the pandemic. And I started writing the book March. Well, I started writing that version of the book in in uh, March of 2020. And by the time I was ready to start the story, it was June. So that's where the story begins, June 2020. And I'm looking back on what the experience was like for me to be in trouble, to not really know how to navigate. It was um, a time when I was working so hard and nothing seemed to be coming together. And I know a lot of people can relate to that. So it felt like a very similar kind of unmoored, strange, tumultuous time, just like the summer that were when the pandemic started. And I was looking back on the experiences, experiences I had with um just not being able to pay my mortgage. You know, I was kind of bopping along for 10 years, you know, just doing all the normal things, working and really trying and making mistakes and figuring it out. And I got to a point where I, my business just slowed. A lot of my clients were affected by the recession in 2008. And I was affected too, but just didn't know it because I was a solopreneur. And when you're in one person shop, you make your own rules and you feel like sometimes you might feel like you're a little bit away from all the big trends that are happening. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of where I was. And I didn't really understand how I fit into that. So I feel like I'm getting off track. What did you ask me? (laughs) No, not at all. It's nice to know where you were in your body, even when you were writing it. And it's Mm -hmm. funny that you're writing about tumultuous times in a really tumultuous time. And I, I guess one thing I'm really curious about is like when the title trusting yourself with money, like I want you to explain to us, like, what does that mean to you? What did that mean at the time when you were going through financial issues? And then what did that mean to you after writing it? Money has been like a classroom for me. Um, the last time we talked, it was, it was such a rich conversation for me. And, and one of the things I, I was thinking about a lot at that time was how all constriction is the same. The pain, the financial stuff, the relational stuff, all of it is kind of constriction and expansion interacting with each other. And I feel like learning to trust myself with money was just kind of beginning to make peace with that inhale and exhale relationship the relationship between the constriction and the expansion. That's how I would describe it now. That's what I think I was attempting to describe. What did I do to start to calm down? And what's so interesting to me is a lot of the things I did intuitively are very similar to the practices that I'm doing with our group. And with the work that I'm doing with you, just, for example, just noticing what's happening now 
And that's the process of beginning to build trust. So I could almost swap out the word trust for capacity, you know, learning to build trust is, is, it doesn't mean I know everything and I don't have to figure anything else out. It just means knowing that after every inhale, there's going to be an exhale, knowing that after every contraction, there's going to be a moment of expansion. That's the trust part. I, I love that you said that because I often find that when we're building the somatic practice of capacity and we're building the safety with constriction and expansion, like having having the actual, um, let's say, lived experience through practicing, when contraction or constriction occurs, we know it's going to be okay. We know expansion yeah. will follow and, and vice versa. Yeah. I really find that that is where self-trust comes from. And when I think of the idea of trusting yourself with money, I, I can't help but think of intergenerational trauma and what was passed to us from our families, like their their values with money and how they felt about it. Um, and, and so there's that practice of, oh, that's what I was taught, but how do I feel about it? How does my body hold it? I would love for you to tell us your own personal experience around that. What did you inherit? You know, what, mm. what values around that did you inherit or practices? It's so, so interesting. I, um, my grandmother um, passed away at the age of 99 um, in January of 2019. So I just kind of acknowledged and celebrated her and acknowledged that three-year anniversary of her passing. And I was talking to a friend, I can't remember who it was now, but I was talking to a friend and just remembering how when I talked to my grandmother, um, when we greeted each other, one of the first things she would say is working hard. So it was almost like saying hello. It was almost like saying, how's the weather? It's <laughs> yeah. like, how are you doing? Working hard? Yeah. That was just part of the greeting. And it was, there was, there was a kind of nobility and significance to working hard. You know, I was born into a, an immigrant family, so that's not unusual. And it's not unusual for any family, really. Everyone's working hard. <laughs> You know, so I feel like for me, when I say that money has been a classroom, it's like there were spiritual lessons for me in the struggle that I was having with money. And I resisted them for a long time because I didn't understand that that's what was happening. And um, beginning to redefine what money is what it's for, how I should interpret the experiences I'm having with money personally, how to unhook or as you would call it, uncouple um, judgment from, you know, relationship experiences with people I'm in business with, all of those things. It's been a very rich journey. But when I think about the intergenerational part, I come from a family of people who work hard. That's you know, next to our actual religion is our religion. And so the idea I had in my head is all I have to do is work hard. And I think there is some wisdom in that. Um, I took Kabbalah One with the Kabbalah Center a couple of years ago. And there's a concept that they have called maximum effort. 
And the idea is that you give your all to something and then the universe catches you and takes you the rest of the way. And that's, I think, an idea that a lot of traditions have. So there is a, a kind of wisdom to the idea that you work hard. But I think there are different ways to do that. There are different ways to to invest effort into a process. Um, The other thing I'll say about my cultural inheritance is that I always wanted to be the solopreneur and it was kind of more of a culture of get a job. And it was really difficult for me to feel like I could thrive outside of the get a job paradigm. And I struggled with that internally, not because anyone was in my ear, you know, trying to convince me to do something other than what I wanted to do. But that was how I internalized what made sense to me, because all of the people I saw in my family who were doing well were employed by other people. So one thing that I don't talk about in the book is the fact that I left a full time job literally days after the WHO declared the the pandemic to be a pandemic. I jumped off a cliff at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I haven't really talked about that publicly or written about it. That's the next book or maybe, (laughs) maybe it's another, I don't know when I'm going to talk about that, but that's what I did. Well, I kind of don't even get to that. (laughs) Now that you're bringing it up. Before I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about, I, it's, I relate so much to your grandmother. My grandfather was the same way. And it was that, like, when you talk about an immigrant family, I agree that everyone does work really hard. And there's this overcoupling, I find immigrants specifically have, or at least my family did, where it was like, this is, this will help Americans value us. Like, our hard work is how we prove that we're, like, good, that we're, like, on the good side of whatever we are. And like the town that I grew up in was very racist, specifically to Puerto Ricans, strangely enough. And that's my family's Puerto Rican. So my grandfather, he clung to his work ethic as like, this was what makes me a good American. This will keep me safe. People respect me if I work hard. So every conversation with him, just like you were saying, with it would always try, he would say, hey, Sonny. He would always call me Sonny, which like in Spanish, like mijo. He'd be like, hey, Sonny. And he would go, making lots of money? be every single time and over the and I never was and over the years <laughs> and I was always like yeah grandpa I'm doing great and I had no money but uh so for, for him <laughs> making money and working hard like literally equal to safety in the American identity I'm really curious about that for you like what was the overcoupling with hard work uh, that you inherited or that you watched your your grandmother or mother Oh, that's so deep. Oh, I mean, what a deep question because, oh, there's so many threads. There's the colonialism thread. There's the, there's the self-worth thread. There's racial, cultural, so much, you know, and it's, it's very emotional too. There's a way that um, productivity can feel like a lifeline, like this is what's keeping me alive. And if I stop running, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. And part of the practice that I was going through in 2021, and I 
kind of ran into your work right at the kind of almost halfway point of doing that was to start to, I don't know if relax is the right word or release, um, but to, to kind of surrender, relax, release, fill in the blank. And so it was an experiment to say, will I die if I'm not overworking? It, it was just an experiment because I felt like I had been told many times intellectually that I wouldn't die, but I just didn't believe it. So there was a point where I had to kind of take the leap, you know, just like I took the leap and left my job. I had to take the leap and see what are the ways that I'm engaging with work and money and um, and my feelings about myself that maybe I could shift a little so that I could have more well-being. And that was a whole other journey. And that's, you know, I haven't really talked much about that yet because it's still so new and gooey. It's all that somatic stuff that we're doing. And like I told you the last time we talked, I've been writing a lot just for myself, trying to process what happened and what is happening. So for example, in my book, I talk about having this heavy limbed feeling like I was almost like I was just stuck on a railroad track, but I just couldn't get up. Like I could see the train coming and I just could not get up. That I would call a freeze response now. <laughs> I, I would call that freeze. That's what I was feeling. And the process of figuring out how to get up, how to look around, move around, figure out that I am safe. That process has been going on for years now and it's still going on. So that's what I'd say about that. It's productivity is not bad. We produce, we, we create, it's beautiful. I just think that sometimes we, I feel like if we get into an autopilot place, that's kind of when we get a little bit off track. Hey, everybody, I wanted to take a quick pause from the episode just to tell you that my next live webinar is on Tuesday, March 1st. It starts at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's $25 per person, and there will be a replay sent to you afterwards. The webinar is all about decolonizing the body, how to stop making our body work for us and instead learn how to relate to it. In a culture that is highly rewarded from productivity, we start treating our bodies as things that are supposed to do what we want them to. And from that inner relationship with ourselves and that force and even dominance comes an exterior expression to others, to other beings, to other humans, to other um, lands even. So understanding colonization through the lens of somatics lets each individual learn how to decolonize and relate to their own body as something to respect and to live with instead of it working for us. So if you're interested, go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and you'll find all you need there, Tuesday, March 1st at 6 p.m. Eastern. You said something really important. You said, um, I had to question and test out, will I die if I stop working or if I stop overworking? Yeah. That's important for me because when I'm talking about these overcouplings, like the, the kind that my grandfather had, that my father inherited and I inherited, 
it's literally at a at a root level it feels like my life will end if i'm not working enough and what's interesting about that is there's mm. a practical element and there's like a purely somatic trauma element because the practical one is attached to like literally buying groceries and paying your rent and, and having your water bill not be turned off. Like there's actual reality to, I need X amount of money. And then there's this somatic state that productivity is overcoupled with threat and anxiety and duty more than there's this output of creative energy that happens to be productive. And they, they're so nuanced, you know, in, in each individual who's listening to this will have a different relationship to what I'm saying. Because for some of us, we're, we're lucky to have a certain lifestyle that allows us to say, okay, I don't have to work 20 extra hours this week. Other people literally to put food on the table have to work 20 extra hours this week. So I, we can only speak for our own experience. I get curious for you, what was it like when you go back to that time? I'm so interested, especially with this, like jumping off of your full-time job. Maybe we'll even go there. You tell me what feels comfortable, but I'm curious somatically, what did it feel like in the body to even take that step of, I'm going to release something that's predictable financially? It, it felt like terror, absolute terror. <laughs> and um, being able to process the terror has been part of what I've been doing in our circles, our somatic circles. The mind and the, you know, my logical mind knows a lot of stuff. <laughs> and what I've, what I've begun to respect is that I can know something intellectually and that's not necessarily going to move the needle with changing my experience. When I first started writing my book, I thought if I could just reverse engineer what worked for me, maybe I can help someone else. That was why I didn't just leave the book in my personal journal on my laptop. I just figured there have to be other people who are having a hard time saving money. I would always save up, you know, like a little squirrel with my acorns, save up, save up, save up. And then something would happen. It would all be gone. And then I'd start over again. And I was just going in this circle. And I did the same thing with, with debt. You know, I'd pay off my debt down to a certain point, then it would start creeping back up again. And I went through a process where I actually sold my house in a short sale, which was really embarrassing for me because it was kind of like a, a moment of failure. Like, wow, you couldn't even hold on to this asset that you, well, it wasn't really an asset yet because it wasn't paid off, but I thought of it that way because of that whole American dream language oh, yeah. that we all get. <laughs> so oh, I didn't yeah. understand. It's not exactly that yet, <laughs> but that's kind of how I thought about it. And I really beat myself up about that. And it was kind of like, I went through that process. I was in my forties. I moved back home with my parents, which was also embarrassing for me because it was like, you're supposed to be this and you're supposed to be that. But in that time with my parents, which I do talk about in the book, after getting, after rolling around in self-pity for quite a while, thank goodness the curiosity kicked in the curiosity kicked in. And that's what really changed everything. And that's why I feel like I was almost going through a very similar process to some of the processes that we do. It's like, 
you become curious, you start to sense, you start to look at what's already happening, which is language that I've heard you use. This is already happening in the body. You're just kind of noticing it. And that's what I was doing with my feelings, my behaviors. And I just started to capture all of it in a kind of sacred way. I just started to capture it. And um, in that process, I started to unwind all the knots and kind of untangle all the stuck places. And I was just led to one thing and then the next thing and the next thing. And I did get out of debt, which I thought would never happen. And I'm still out of debt, which is, you know, has felt for a while like a small miracle. It's just starting to feel normal now after several years. And to just be able to navigate from one place to the other, not necessarily having the certainty in your mind of like, I, I figured out that the reason why jobs are so important is that it's an agreement and people believe in them. That's why they're important. So if I get hired somewhere, I believe I can check off a box now. Everything's going to be fine. In reality, that may not be the case, but that it calms me enough to make me feel like that is the case. And I learned that I'm not the kind of person who can use that for safety. I'm, I can't do that. I'm not really cut out for that. So to create this other pathway to trust, safety, capacity has been my journey. And that's kind of become my work now is to explore that, to talk about it, to teach about it, to write about it. So that's kind of where that's gone. I think my favorite part about that piece right there you just spoke about was the transformation of like the ego death, you know, into something really beautiful. So like here you are in your 40s, you have to sell your house, you have to move in with your parents. It's like everything opposite of the American dream that we're sold, right? Which traditionally actually was the way things were for like hundreds of, you know, thousands, thousands and thousands of years we lived with our families. It wasn't like, go get your house and have an asset. It's, it's, that's a remarkably new concept. Um, and when that concept fails, there is this internalized failure within the self and this embarrassment and shame. And so what I love about this part of your story is the worst happens, right? That we think is the worst. And there you are with these feelings and then suddenly something in you shifts and turns into curiosity. And what's so magical about curiosity is without curiosity, there's just pure identity. There's the I know mind. So I know I'm a failure. It's obvious. I know I don't deserve anything. I lost my house. I, all these I knows, then we identify with them. And then we're literally, like you said, that freeze response, we're immobilized by the, the visceral, you know, um, overwhelm from that identity. Yet when the curiosity comes in, the identity actually falls away because we start questioning it. Hmm. Am I really lacking because I sold my house? Is that true? And then we sit with it and we start to notice oh, there's this part in me that feels that, but that's not me. It makes sense that you would have this period where you're kind of doing the self-inquiry, like you said, this intuitive somatic practice, you didn't have words for then. 
And through that lightening, which essentially means your relationship to yourself getting better and not being so rude or judgmental with yourself, let's say, this inner shame, then there is space, right? That's where we talk about resilience and capacity to actually be like, oh, maybe I can move forward and live the kind of life I want to live. Maybe I will leave this job. Maybe I will try to do something that feels what has seemingly felt unsafe might actually be safe for me. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, 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 um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so my, so my, question then, my question from the yes is, I, I, want, I want to know, let me think how to ask mm. the question. Like for people listening who are thinking, okay, this sounds great. Like, I don't want to identify or overcouple with money and values. I want to see them as a relationship, see myself separate from that, make capacity. How do I quit my job? <laughs> how do, <laughs> how do, come on, Bridget, tell me. Like, how do I actually do, like, tell us how you did it, maybe. Like, what do you, you know, teach us. What's the story? Um, you know what? I do have something to say about what you said before that. Um, money is funny because it's, it's this real thing. Like the way that our society and our lives are set up, we need it. Unless you're out here just growing your own food and whatever, you need it to navigate you know, to buy plane tickets, to, you know, feed your family, to buy gifts, whatever we use it, we need it. And it makes sense that we would get to a, a point in our, our attention where it's like, how much do I have? Pile it up. Don't touch it. Oh no, I have to touch it and go into that whole back and forth. It makes sense that we would have to do that because we use it. One of the things I talked about in the book is that because I always heard people saying, oh, money's a tool. And I thought, no, this is life and death. It doesn't feel like it's just a tool. It feels like life and death to me. It feels like, it feels like a kind of moral uh, judgment on who I am as a person. It really feels like that. And I, you know, I thought it was really important to write about that because that's what I was experiencing. You have to kind of go through all of that to come back to the place where you can then acknowledge once again, that money is just a tool. But if you have, you know, $30 in the bank and you can't pay your mortgage, you don't want to hear that. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to write about how to start where you are. You, I, you know, one of the most irritating things to me during that time was having, even though I'm a super new agey person, hearing people talk about the new agey aspects of money and prosperity when I needed money, <laughs> you know, it was just so, it oh, was yeah. so oh, yeah. irritating to hear people, oh, just do this and do that. And I was doing all those things, all the feng shui stuff, and I'm not knocking any of it because I love it, but I needed to get grounded on the ground in the world. And so one of the first things I did was, which will sound very, um, I think it will sound familiar to you. I just turned inward and started to say, what am I doing? What am I spending? What am I thinking? How do I feel about what I have? 
what are my choices and how do I feel about them? I just started writing a lot. That's all I could do because I didn't know what else to do. You know, I was at a point during that time when I just, I had a lot of decisions to make and no answers. So I just started with that. And that process pulled me through. It was kind of like when you have a health crisis and it pulls you into this discovery of all these things you should be doing in a way that maybe you wouldn't have been open to it otherwise. That's what money was like for me. It was like, I had this breakdown. I lost some clients. I I was dealing with a real struggle to make ends meet. I couldn't pay my mortgage. And then I got pulled into this pretty unpleasant experience that when I was going through it started to help me to build certain muscles, help me to strengthen certain aspects of who I am, what I'm capable of. And as I was going through it, I started to morph and change. And then I started to feel more capable. And then I started getting resources and then I followed them. And it was a very sloppy, um, messy process. It wasn't a linear process like, oh, seven days to this. And then I was done, which is something that you say also, this is not a six week thing. This is a years long thing. This is a lifelong thing. So the funny, the reason I laughed so hard when you said, how do people quit their jobs is that I think that looks different for everyone. And I know that's not a satisfying answer for us in our culture. We like, you know, the ideas that there are seven steps to this and 30 days to that, but it's just not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think, I don't know why people keep talking about 28 days, you know, for instance, I have it. I was like, <laughs> for me, it's more like 28 months just to kind of oh. get it into my body. I don't know Agreed. where that came Anyway, a lot of people say, oh, it takes about 28 days to instill a habit. And I love time-related containers. I'm always doing a 28-day, 10-day thing. I always do that, you know, 100 days of this. But the truth is, it takes a long time to inhabit a way of thinking, a way of Mm. moving, a way of being. It takes a long time. And so... See, that was it right there. I have to pause because you said it. So you brought, you're bringing up a lot that feels important. Wait, first of all, I'm very satisfied by your answer that there is no answer. <laughs> I, think, I love that because what you're giving us instead of an answer is a practice, really. You know, you're saying, okay, the answer, if you're in a situation you don't like, the answer isn't just like jump off of the situation. The answer is go inside and really learn about the relationship between you and the thing you don't like learn about the overcouplings, learn about the history. Saying to someone money is a tool, it's like saying to someone who's severely traumatized, but it's over. Like the event, it's over, get over it. It's the same get difference, over it. right? Mm-hmm. It's like, but it's in our bodies, like any yes. other relationship. Mm-hmm. The relationship to money is a physiological, biological event. And like you just said, there's this world we live in where there's like a, a, a rule, a law to this world where we actually need it to like walk into a store and buy clothing, <laughs> you know, if you, or even if it's $1, a dollar, you, know, you have to go into the store and still use that $1 bill to buy a shirt. So there's still this like reality based on our shared value systems that we need money to survive in this country, at least globally at this point, I believe. And it's kind of important to notice that 
there's an inner relationship that gets inherited or gets that we gets passed down to us through our inheritance, through our ancestors, through what we see, through cultural, historical traumas you were talking about. And then there's this reality of there's a construct we live in, a structure based on money. So how do we relate to that structure? Right? How do we relate to the values that were given to us from our ancestors? That inner work, the reason why that's the answer for me with the question of like, how do I quit my job or how do I change my relationship to money is I have seen so many people who have billions of dollars suddenly have nothing. And that experience brings them to the same place. What's my relationship to myself, right? It's like the money can dry up for any of us at any time. If we don't have that container of relating to ourselves, it's always going to be a traumatic experience and the money is like a temporary band-aid. And that doesn't feel like a good relationship to money to me. So I'm curious about that for you after going through what you went through. It's so interesting, Luis, because one thing I learned, which surprised me, was that I can have just as much anxiety with $100 in the bank, not knowing how I'm going to pay my bills to 10 grand. I can have the same level of anxiety. I wasn't expecting that. I really believed that having more money would help because having more money is important. So there's a way that there are these little stair steps in logic that I had to add in. You know, it's, it doesn't like, for example, the fact that um, money isn't everything and money can't buy happiness. It doesn't mean I don't need money. It just means I'm changing my relationship to money and I'm not, I'm not coupling peace with money. I can't do that anymore because I know it's not true, but Mm. I needed to kind of see that for myself when I didn't have what I needed. No one could convince me of that. No one. (laughs) It's just really important what you just said. And we, um, we have to close soon, but I want to, I want to say what you just said, like reflected because what you're actually talking about is like a codependent relationship to money. Like that's going to make me feel better. That's going to bring me peace. And you know, your, your perfect example, $10, 10 grand, there's still a constriction. So it's, it's like how to re- transform out of a codependent relationship to money into one that's more like interdependent. How do I relate to it? How does it relate to me? You know, how am I using it? All these, all these questions. Would you, would you agree with that or not? Where does that go for you? Mm, could you restate one more time? Because I'm a little... Absolutely. You said so many things. I said so many things. So the, the main <laughs> the main thing I'm curious about is when you said um, I was depending on it for my peace, and then you were noticing like without having money or with having money, there still wasn't a peace. There was still a constriction because the relationship to the money was actually what you needed to work with versus having more. I see that as a shift from being codependent to money to actually being self-regulating and then having a relationship to money that's more secure. And so I'm curious about that for you. Wow. Wow. That is so beautiful and complex. Um, I think, I think what I would say about that is just that having the intestinal fortitude, the courage, the willingness, whatever you want to call it, of looking inward, sitting with yourself, sitting with your own experiences does just kind of organically open up a kind of wisdom. And it opens up a kind of 
possibility just to be able to put one foot in front of the other, to be in the moment and then to do the next thing and then to do the next thing. And what's really interesting is that sometimes I guess, you know, life gets busy and we have this culture of busyness and, you know, you kind of get a lot of gold stars for being that way, for being busy. And so in that process, things kind of get out of balance. But the idea that the safety comes from the accumulation of money, it makes sense logically if you're just thinking about things in a conventional way, but experientially it just doesn't add up. And all you have to do is accumulate enough money to see that. (laughs) But I'm not going to, what I don't ever want to do is tell someone who is uh, experiencing hardship, who is experiencing fear and terror, who's about to lose their home, who's about to lose their job, who just found out that their, their normal source of income is gone. What I don't want to do is tell that person Oh, this, I don't, I don't want to tell them anything that's kind of un, unmoored, ungrounded and philosophical. That's not useful. And it's kind of, to me, kind of unkind. And un, it's just not, I didn't like it when I was in that position and I'm certainly not going to do it. So I think it's important to have tools and, and practices for every stage And then, like you said about the codependent relationship, that kind of eases, just like pain eases when I tune into my body. You know, it it eases. I think those constrictions will ease. But the question is, where am I right now? And how can I navigate to the next moment? How How can I figure that out? And I don't think you can escape that. I don't think you can jump out of your current life, you know, as much as you might want to because of the discomfort, mm-hmm. you know, you have to kind of come back to where you are now and start where you are now. And there are things that all of us can do wherever we are. So building that relationship, I don't think it's easier for someone who's in this position or that position. It's a very unique and personal process. Because all of us are kind of coming back to ourselves. That's ultimately the practice mm-hmm. is to come back to yourself and to let that relationship with yourself become richer mm-hmm. and to understand that people from the outside can't always tell you exactly what you need to do. You can, you can learn to listen, learn to listen to what life is trying to tell you through the actual circumstances of your current life. Mm, That's the gold right there. Yeah, listen to what life's trying to tell you through the actual circumstances of your current life, your current situation. Yeah. And that's a real wisdom. And and any of you listening, even to ask yourselves right now, like to using your word, where am I? I love the, I always ask people to say instead of who am I or what do I want, where am I? And where am I is so grounding and terrifying, depending on where you are. But what's really nice about it is it takes away the historical pain and it takes away the anxiety of where you think you're supposed to be and lets you just say, okay, where am I? What's my capacity right now? What needs to happen right now? 
And that's for me, that that's like the daily practice, right? Is constantly oh, noticing God. where am I? So everyone listening, just to even check that out as we close the episode with when it comes to your relationship to money or your circumstance, just asking yourself, okay, I know where I think I want to be. I know where I've been told I should be. I know where I've been. Where am I right now? And where can I find safety in that? And where can I find need? Where can I find capacity? Like, what can I learn about this moment right here? So I'm, I'm just, I'm so happy that you joined us again. And so excited for everyone to listen to this and go get your book and read it and work with you. And as we close, how do you work with people? Like, do you, how can people find you? What can they do to learn from you? Well, I have my book. Um, I have a few slots that I keep open to work with people one-on-one so they can go to my website, trustyourselfwithmoney.com. And I'm finishing up a workbook. And I'm really excited. Actually, I'm finishing up two workbooks. One is a companion to my book, Trust Yourself With Money, and the other is for solopreneurs. Very nice. Because I think there are a lot of people who are making that leap from, you know, working for someone else to working for themselves. And I have um, some things to share with them. So um, if people go to my website and join my mailing list, they'll, they'll get the announcement for when these these two books are ready. Oh, so cool. Yeah. Thank thank you so much, Bridget. I just love talking to you. Oh, thank you too, Luis. I'll see you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath and just notice what's your body doing right now. Sit with it. Let it speak to you. And let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. To learn more about my work, you can visit holisticlifenavigation.com and sign up for my mailing list. You'll receive a bi-weekly newsletter with specific monthly topics, free resources, and upcoming events. You can also follow me on Instagram. If you like my podcast, please leave a review and share. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give in to mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.